Hey, everyone. We hope your week is going incredibly well. My name is Nate. I'm one of the folks who's been on staff here at ECV. And here's just a quick programming note before we let you listen to Patrick's amazing talk from Sunday. Unfortunately, due to some technological errors, the recording of Patrick's talk picks up mid-sermon. We lost probably about the first few minutes of his talk. So we're really sorry about that, but we hope you can enjoy his talk and also glean lots of godly wisdom that Patrick drops in the midst of this talk. So blessings to you. We hope your day is going incredibly well, and we hope to see you soon. Enjoy. That they can't tell up from down. They might think that they are flying out of a cloud when they are actually flying right into the ground. Experienced pilots have spent many, many hours being trained to trust the instruments on the control panel in front of them. They have all these dials, all these computers that tell them how high off the ground they are and which direction they're going and what's the angle of their wings. And so inside a cloud, when you, you lose sight, you lose orientation, your sense of balance is so confused you cannot tell up from down. You have to learn to trust that your instruments in front of you are telling you the truth. So it's like Jesus is saying, not exactly that the kingdom is upside down, but that we are upside down. The, the way we think about blessing and favor is just is turned the wrong way around from God's reality. It is like we are flying in a cloud, but we are upside down and we don't even know it. When we try to ascend, when we, when we try to reach for what we think blessing looks like by climbing society's ladder, it is like we are pulling back, pulling up in our plane, believing we are ascending. But in relation to God's kingdom, we are flying ourselves right into the ground. If we could learn to trust the instruments God has given us in front of us, we would know where we are, and we would push our plane down. We would descend. We would not simply choose what seems best for us, we would take account of the poor, the hungry, the weeping. We would draw close to them. Even if it felt costly to us, even if our instincts, our sense of balance were telling us this is a terrible idea, we would descend. Trusting that in, in God's kingdom, we are actually moving up towards real favor and grace. What are these, these instruments that God helps us, to, that God gives us to discern up from down? Well, first and foremost, it is Jesus and his teaching and his life that we see in Scripture. We, we study the Bible, we learn about Jesus, we learn that Jesus is alive, that we can receive counsel from the Spirit of Jesus, that we can find a place in the church, the body of Jesus. And over time, a new kind of confidence is formed in us, that we can be guided by Jesus, even if his instructions seem like they are at odds with what the world is telling us. We can learn to fly by those instruments. So if you take nothing else from this sermon, just remember that. God's kingdom is upside down from this world, and what we really mean is that we, our world, our life is upside down from God's reality. The guidance that Jesus gives us in this situation is first to say that if you want to behold the kingdom, you must get up and go to the poor and suffering. Your best chance of beholding the kingdom is to start there. How will you know the kingdom when you see it? Well, watch for God working for the blessing of the poor and suffering. 
So let me give you this invitation. Where are you still depending on your own sense of up and down? Your own, your own hope in success and failure. What would it mean for you to really investigate this instrument panel that God has given you to lead you into the kingdom? What would it mean even this summer to study and interact with the life of Jesus? Behold the kingdom. By following Jesus to where he would go, to places where people suffer, then watch him work for their good. And really, that's the end of the sermon. I I bid you good day. Roll the credits. If you really, if you still want to stick around for like one of those scenes after the credits, like a bonus scene afterwards, I am going to share a little bit more really about some things that I have thought about as I have wrestled with a long time for, with these words from Luke chapter 6. This is, and this is not easy stuff. This is hard stuff. So if you're sticking around, it's on you now. You might end up confused. You might even feel a little bit offended or discouraged at the end of this. I'm sorry about that. But also, that might be a more honest experience of the Sermon on the Plain than any other lesson that I have to teach you. So, I could use some help here. So let's pray before we go any farther. Holy Spirit, come. Testify to us about the Son. Lord Jesus, we need you to fill in for us what simply cannot be described. Lord, give us your presence. Give us your heart for the poor, the hungry, those who weep, those who are persecuted. The kingdom of God belongs to them. So carry us to where they are. You know, um, let me just read, let me read Jesus' Sermon on the Plain one more time because he says it better than I can. So just really slow down and listen. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will weep and mourn. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Here's the thing that I'm, I'm kind of noticing as I'm reading these, these verses. You all seem strangely relaxed about this. Why are you not panicking? 
Why are you not terrified by what Jesus is saying to you? I can only think of three options. One is that you don't really believe that Jesus is telling the truth. Two is that somehow you believe that these verses justify you in some way, that you don't really believe that you are rich, well-fed, and generally favored by the world. The only other option, three, is that you trust in God's grace and love for you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I believe that that last one is true for many of you, and I believe that's the only reason not to panic, and so many of you are probably at peace for a very good reason. When, when I first started to follow Jesus, the, the only churches, the Christian churches that I knew were places where people seemed to think that you shouldn't take Jesus too literally here. Like, don't let the sermon on the plane make you go crazy. We are not out here trying to be poor or give up happiness or privileges. Those churches told me that Jesus is very, Jesus is very polite. Jesus doesn't really want anybody to woe. And when he talks about his love for the poor, he really kind of means the spiritually poor, which is sort of just means simple, ordinary, salt-of-the-earth people like us. Jesus is just an ordinary guy who likes ordinary things, like football and his flat-screen television and his 9,000-pound pickup truck and his deer rifle. So congrats, Patrick, you every man. You are blessed. Blessed are you. You were given the greatest blessing of all the very moment you were born on the American plane. P-L-A-I-N. Try to keep up. And when I started following Jesus, I started wondering if Jesus meant the things that he said. And the more I got to know him, the more I started to see things he was talking about becoming more and more real in my life. And I started to realize that if I really wanted to behold Jesus in his kingdom, I wouldn't do it until I started to take passages like the Sermon on the Plain a lot more seriously. Discovering that made me feel towards these so-called churches and so-called Christians that I had known. It filled me with what you might describe as a furious face-punching rage. I felt like they had not helped me find Jesus, and worse, they had actively tried to lead me away from Jesus. It's worth noting, I think, that I was pretty angry about a lot of things before I came to know Jesus. Uh, and guess what? After I was still pretty angry after I met Jesus. God has kept working on me over the years. I, 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 by grace, I am different now. So I'm not trying to say that wanting to punch faces was like I was, the sign I was on the right track into the kingdom. Go back. You can go listen to Josh's sermon series on the way of nonviolence, please. But I was at least beginning to take Jesus seriously. And I began to believe that we would be better off if we were more concerned about our wealth and status. If we saw it as a real risk to our souls. Just the other day, I found myself saying to a friend of mine, just on Thursday, I, I was saying, get paid, keep getting them checks. And honestly, I kind of, I, there's a part of that that I need to repent of. 
Because when a friend tells me about a raise that they're getting, I always want to say, fantastic, amazing. When I, what I'm really just trying to say is, I, I love you and I want you to flourish. But I shouldn't confuse that necessarily with more money. So when a friend tells me about a big new salary, I would be better off if I said to them, I will pray for you. That is not easy. You are taking on a big challenge. You will have to be so diligent to keep looking for the kingdom of God with this new status and power. If you try to do it with human effort, it will be impossible. But with God, it is possible. Maybe he will let you behold the kingdom even in the midst of all that wealth. I began to believe that we should use the word billionaire like we use the word criminal or murderer or terrorist. That in a world of starvation, it is a great evil for one person to have more money than whole countries. I began to believe that we should be deeply worried if the only poor people in our lives are our employees. In America, there is absolutely a racial dimension to the division between rich and poor, so it is relevant for us as white Americans who want to follow Jesus. If we find ourselves regularly in a rooms with all white people, we should at least think, uh-oh, what, what happened here? I still, I don't know what it means to be a white suburban American church and to think in any way that you are taking Jesus seriously here. So when I started following Jesus and all this kind of furious passion, I set off on a 12, 15-year journey. This is, where, this is where the sermon like threatens to really get out of control because there is just, there are too many stories. It is, it is just too much. Be careful what you wish for. In summary, I was, I was on a journey to figure out how to draw near to the poor so that I might behold the kingdom that Jesus says is theirs. I moved into the poorest part of town. A friend and I rented the largest house we could find. For years, we, we let all kinds of people just crash with us. We tried to give everything away. We tried to bless our neighbors. I later, long story short, I later moved to South Africa. I, I spent years working with drug addicts on the streets. Uh, then I later went to work in what South Africans call townships, which are places of some of the, the most extreme poverty I've ever seen in my life. And if all that makes you think, wow, Patrick, you're amazing. Let me just stop you right there. You're wrong about that. I, I didn't do anything amazing. I failed at a lot of things. I have, I have many sins to confess along the way. If that makes you think, wow, Patrick, you're so humble. Let me stop you right there. You're wrong about that. It would, it would be a thrill for me to go back and pick and choose the stories that make me look awesome. We just don't have time for that right now. But I, I'm not humble. And if you hear that and think, wow, Patrick, you are really hard on yourself. Again, let me stop you right there. You're wrong. I don't have any regrets about all these failures. There was so much beauty in God's grace along the way. It was always all about God. Whether I'm a good or bad person is actually a pretty uninteresting question because the love of God covers the whole thing from beginning to end. It doesn't answer the question. It renders all the questions meaningless. So I'm not here to tell you about how to live a life in an, an, an ethical life in an unequal world. I actually think that's kind of silly, to be honest. 
I'm trying to tell you about what it means to behold the kingdom of God. I used to hate it when Christians were asked about poverty and started talking about the Spirit. But for over the years, what I have been learning over and over again is about all of this spiritual gunk that is piled up in me, all these ways that I am blinded in my whole self to the kingdom. But then, in, in those moments of honesty, I get also to see these miraculous ways that God gives sight to the blind. So I will, let me try to give you one example. I, one of the big obstacles in my heart was that I really wanted the people that I served to reward me with their gratitude. I wanted them to be thankful, I wanted them to be sweet and innocent and to love me. And when it turned out that they weren't always those things and that they didn't always even particularly like me, I found it easy to get frustrated. I wanted them, in the end, I found that I wanted them to be innocent because I wanted to believe that I could make myself innocent by being on their side. And in that way, I had traded in one simple lie for another simple lie. If I used to believe that rich people are blessed because they are basically good, for a while, I interpreted Luke 6 to mean that poor people are blessed because they are basically good. I thought that every poor person was innocent, that they were a victim, that I should pity them, that they could never really do anything wrong because they could never really do anything for themselves at all. All of their decisions had been made for them already by a kind of oppressive system. In our story, we can, in our culture, we can tell ourselves a story that is not any closer to God than the old story. We think that we used to be fools who thought that poor equals cursed. Now we think that we are smart because we know that poor equals righteous. In that way of thinking, there, there are people who will go out of their way to emphasize how hard their upbringing was, to, to make sure you know that they never had any advantages, that everything they have ever accomplished, they have entirely earned. They want that fact to justify themselves. You know who I love having around is Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon? Because as long as that dude is around, I feel like I'm not that evil. Like, I must be doing okay. I'm doing pretty good. There is always someone richer than me, and so relatively speaking, aren't I kind of poor? Shouldn't there get, like, these blessings that, I, that Jesus talks about? Wouldn't it be nice if they were, like, kind of progressively distributed? Like, I get, I get a percentage of God's blessings, inversely proportional to my income. I could get on board with Jesus quite easily if it doesn't require me to do anything. I just have to learn to present myself as more and more oppressed. I can then tell myself that buying an iPhone 12 or retro Jordans or whatever, when rich people do it, that's wasteful consumerism. When I, a poor person, do it, it is really a blow for justice. I am making my way up. I am resisting the powers that have been trying to keep me down. All of that has been an easy way for me to miss the kingdom of God. You know, over the years, the people who have been the biggest source of really miraculous healing for my spiritual blindness, it's, it's very strange to me. It was friends of mine in the townships who belonged to what we might call prosperity churches. 
These are prosperity churches are churches that preach the prosperity gospel, which is a kind of twisted version of the gospel. It's, it's the opposite of what Jesus is saying here in Luke 6. That they preach that God wants you to be rich, that the best way to be rich is to win God's favor, and the best way to win God's, God's favor is to give all your money to the church. So you can become extremely wealthy as a, as a prosperity pastor while your congregation remains poor, and you just kind of keep on stealing what little money they have. And if that sounds terrible, that's because you're right. That is terrible. And yet I, over and over again, I was often shocked to find that sometimes in certain in pockets of these churches, among these congregants, some of them were people who were real followers of Jesus. There were people who loved Jesus with their whole hearts, even when their pastors were wicked. It was crazy to me, but somehow in their poverty, the kingdom belonged to them. Jesus came near to them. They knew they were poor. They saw themselves as they were without deception. And when they encountered the love of God, it gave them the freedom to hope that God would really take up their cause. That God loved them enough to bless them materially in this life. That God would give them abundance and justice and righteousness and God would do it sooner rather than later. So when they donated to the church, they weren't trying to pay off God. They, they weren't trying to get rich quick. They were trying to love God. And then they had the courage to believe that God loved them enough to care even for poor people like them. They had nowhere else to turn but to God. And when God provided for them in any small way, they were wildly, joyously grateful. They praised and they praised and they praised and behold, there was a taste of the kingdom of God. No one, not the rich, not the poor, is blessed because they are basically good. People are blessed because God is good, and people are blessed when they know God, and then when they are free to worship God's goodness, to trust that God's blessings are real and for them and are bountiful. So as a rich person myself, and woe to me, by the way, woe to me. I honestly struggle to think of poverty as anything other than a loss of what I am owed. It is at best a sacrifice that I choose to make in order to make myself righteous. And because of all that, I struggle to honestly see God as he is, as my provider. I can call him that, but I don't really feel the truth of it. And so, in that way, I already have my consolation. And it is pretty plain. P-L-A-I-N. This is a whole different kind of plain. Sorry. My life is pretty easy. And when God gives me this easy life, I don't receive it as God's gracious abundance. I receive it as just the status quo. Bare minimum is just a, what a just God ought to give me to make my life livable for me and to restore to me the sacrifices that I have made. When God blesses me with money, I am I'm not worshipful like my friends in the townships were. I, am, I get weirdly ambivalent about it. I, I treat it as like a little bit of a complication but also, it's just a really nice addition to my life. I don't treat it like salvation. Like God's power come to me, for me, for love. 
And I don't treat it that way because as a rich person, deep down, I kind of believe that I already have enough on my own without God. In fact, I, I deserve to have enough. My abilities and circumstances are what made me rich, and rightly so, I tell myself. And that has been, and in many ways continues to be, an enormous blind spot, which prevents me from seeing the kingdom of God. I think a lot these days about identity, about what it really means to, to become someone who lets my identity be fully immersed in Jesus. What does it mean to stop saying to God, here is what I am and what I can offer, and to really hear God say over me, this is who you are, Patrick. And I think if I really listened to God, I would begin to identify with poor people. I believe that as Christians, we are not post-tribal. We do have a tribe. It is not a nation or a race or an ethnic group, nor is our tribe even a church, nor is it even just the people who call themselves Christians. Our nation is the kingdom of God. Our home is where God is at. And our family are those to whom the kingdom belongs. And so our people, our tribe, are the poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the mourning. It is possible to be materially, materially poor, but to still think in some way that the rich are your real tribe. They are the people that you really belong to. You deserve to be with them, and then you either spend your life striving to get to where you believe you ought to be, or you become bitter and resentful at all the ways that your rightful place has been denied to you. Is the, is the opposite possible? Is it possible to be materially as rich as I am, but really consider yourself to be in your identity a poor person? I don't know. I am, I am trying to figure that out. It must require me to believe, to really believe that I own nothing that I bring nothing to God, that I am a beggar before God. And that I will have to learn from Jesus, my King, what it takes to bless and defend and preserve our tribe, which is the poor, the abused, and the oppressed. Not every poor person follows Jesus, but every follower of Jesus is, in the end, a poor person. And if we seek the welfare of the poor, we will, even unintentionally, seek the good of the church as well. Of course, it's been a few years now since I moved back to the U.S. On, on any given day in my new life here with my new house and my new car, I wonder, am I just a total sellout? Have I just given up on the kingdom entirely? I don't, I don't really believe that that voice comes from God, but I, I do have to be careful in discernment. And I need the help of all of you and your experiences to help me in that discernment. I was, I was in a conversation earlier this week with, uh, with Charmaine Yoon. Some of you know Charmaine and her husband Song. They are just such faithful people in this church, and they have lived for years and years and years, decades in New Haven, trying to figure out what this means to behold the kingdom amidst the poor and the needy. Charmaine was saying to me that she actually lately has been getting this kind of word that she's been wondering about, about what it means for the church to, she used the word absorb, absorb the costs of poverty, to fully take them upon ourselves. 
And I would love to hear more of what she means by that, because I, I think I have similar questions. But what really encouraged me is that Charmaine, who has been in pursuit of God's kingdom for longer, more passionately, more consistently than I have, if she is still trying to figure it out, then it is probably okay for the rest of us to be in the process of figuring it out as well. So after all this uh, talking, you might have some comments. You might have some questions. I probably don't have any answers. If you would like to talk about these things more, if you want to discern together, come join us at our home group on Thursday night with Sinclair. The one thing I will tell you is that if you want to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus is also to walk down this road in pursuit of the kingdom, to, to ask yourself what it will mean in your life to take Jesus very seriously. Asking then where you will have to stand if you want to behold the kingdom. So I'm going to invite the worship team up here. We are going to enter into praise and gratitude for God, our provider. And as we do that, we are going to take communion together. So if you would like to raise your hand, if you do not have a communion cup, someone will come around to, to bring one to you.